Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, we're glad that you've joined us. Last week we began a very powerful and influential series in our church's life called Corrective Lenses. Chad Ragsdale, professor at Ozark Christian College and uh, one of our members here at the church, uh, brought us a message about what worldview is. And he defined worldview very cleanly, a full set of beliefs about the world and our place in the world. Uh, it's a unique concept, and for many of us, we, we think that worldviews are for the philosophers, but it's not necessarily true. Every one of us has a worldview, whether you know it or not. You've either chosen your worldview, or it has been given to you, or you've adopted it from people that are influencers in your life. Uh, I'd like to define, and I hope I don't oversimplify it, I have the ability to do that, take a big complex topic and for a sermon make it so simple I ruin it. I don't want to do that, but let me take a stab in the dark at this. How do we take a full set of beliefs about who we are, about the world and our place in the world, and and how do we look at that? I think one of the the dashboard indicators for your worldview is what you place value in and on, what you give supreme value to in your life. And the value of anything is shown by your time and attention to it. You can't love something without giving it attention. In fact, that's what love is. It is a focused attention on something. Adoration, affection, support, encouragement, protection. And so our worldview is defined by these set of beliefs that we place value in. Uh, There are some of us that have a worldview that includes insignificant things of value, like sports. Uh, It's crystal clear. If your day can be ruined by a sporting team that you love losing your worldview has incorporated something that doesn't have great lasting value. And this is coming from a Cub fan. So I'm an expert on this. When you cry as a, as a 12-year-old because Notre Dame loses a football game, you need to understand what's really important. And I've done all of those things. It might be art and entertainment. Uh, I, I want to try to be cute with this. I'm going to warn you in advance. But if your heart gets broken over a divorce in Hollywood between two people who you've never met and don't know you exist, your worldview is jacked up. <laughs> what are you placing value in and on? There are some significant things that you have a worldview on that is, uh, rather is incorporated into your worldview. Your, the value of education or not being educated. They're, these aren't things that make us superior, but they're things that are indicators of the things that we value and it's a part of our worldview. Church participation. Is the church here for you or are you here for the church? Is the church here for the world or is the church to protect the saved? It's part of your worldview. The way you look at work. I'm really excited to say that on Wednesday nights we're doing a supplemental study to everything we do on Sunday mornings, we're, we're looking at Wednesday nights at a deeper level, and Michael DeFazio is going to be teaching this Wednesday night in this room on the theology of work. Why do we work? What's the purpose of it? Is it a curse or a blessing? I'm really excited to, ha- to have Michael here and to share that Wednesday night. Your worldview brings in your political affiliation. 
I know there are some people who think that if you're a Christian, you're naturally going to align yourself with this political party. That's a worldview. As if any political power group can represent the kingdom of heaven. They can't. Racism, sexism, material possessions are all the things that we value or don't, and they affect our worldview. And Chad said it so well last week that you cannot choose to live the unexamined life as a believer. So if you want to say worldviewer for the philosophers and thinkers, and I simply just want to plow through every day doing my work, protecting my family, and living my life my way, you just defined your worldview. Every one of us has it. Some of us choose it. Some of us have just accepted it. So the question I have to ask myself when I'm studying for this message is, how do I know I have the right worldview? I'm a person who likes to be right. My wife says that to me every now and then. You always think you're right. I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was right. I don't make stuff up. So I obviously think it's right. And she goes, see, there's, there's my point. <laughs> I lose either way. But as the older I get, the more I would rather not be right, I'd rather be righteous. And I think they're combined together, but one is very much about me and the other is very much about others. So how do we know our worldview is correct? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Shared last week, and if I get my way, it'll be shared every week. I'm going to encourage you to memorize this verse. would love to be able to ask anybody in the hallway, how do you understand worldview? And you'd be able to quote 2 Corinthians 10, 5. This is what Paul wrote. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. How do you develop an accurate, biblical, God-honoring worldview? Paul just told us. He said it in these words. You take the knowledge of God and you take it captive to Christ. The knowledge of God is not just the knowledge that there is a God. So I need to correct that up front. Paul's use of the knowledge of God, according to the scholars, is a synonym for the gospel. So knowing there is a God does not give you a proper worldview. Everybody knows there's a God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, anybody who pays attention to nature knows that this didn't happen by accident. That God is made known through creation, primarily, and then revealed personally through Jesus. So every culture has a God. Why does every culture that's ever existed worship something? Because the fact that there is a God is undeniable. So the knowledge of God is not that there is a God. The knowledge of God is a synonym for the gospel. But if I said to Christians on the street, if we would have had time this week to go out and say, what does the gospel mean? Most of us would tell the story of baby Jesus at Christmas who died a terrible death and was a wonderful man. Church, that's not the gospel. That's the fairy tale side of it. The gospel is this. I have rebelled against God. I have broken my life with my sin. And I can't save myself. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't better myself. I can't repair the damage I've done. I am a sinner who needs saved. And my worldview, according to the gospel, is that God sent his son to save me from my sins, to restore me, and to enter into his kingdom. That's the gospel. It's, it's not just the junior church stories that we lay the foundation with our children. We have to get beyond the Sunday school gospel and get to the biblical narrative of Jesus Christ, the gospel. 
So the knowledge of God is the knowledge of the gospel story, and the gospel story is all about Jesus. You want to know what your corrective lens is? It's when you know who Jesus Christ is, you'll see everything differently. Everything will be different when taken captive to Christ. It's the gospel that I cannot self-save myself. So if you want to know what your dashboard says about your worldview, what are you trying to be saved by? What is the thing that saves you? Is it money? Is it work? Is it fame? Is it sports? Is it entertainment? Is it leisure? Is it the ability to have whatever you want to be able to protect yourself? Because some of the things that we use to save ourselves actually do temporarily work. In other words, they make us feel saved, but they can't fully save you. If you have enough money, you can, you can go through your life without a lot of need. So if you want to be saved from needing things, money is a temporary savior. But at the end of your life, when you measure the, the, the dynamic of your life and its influence, and you realize that you haven't solved the problem of sin, you've not been saved. You've just been placated, numbed, made to feel good for a moment. You see, many of our guiding worldviews tell us the opposite of what Jesus tells us. They say if you have friends, money, fame, and accomplishments, then you have overcome your condition. And I need you to know when you put on the contact lens, when you put on the glasses and you see the world through every thought taking captive to Christ, you're going to realize that some of the things that we thought saved us actually did not do any of those things. And that's why we're spending Sundays and Wednesdays as a church for the next two months, is to help you and me realize that there is a way to see this world and to find real value in things that really last. So here's the question of the day. This is my assignment today. What is the purpose of man according to the knowledge of God? What is the purpose of man according to the knowledge of God? And that's a huge question. Philosophers have debated this. Theologians talk about this regularly. Instead of asking what the world thinks, I want to look in my Bible and find out, is there an answer to this question? I found some examples. This is not exhaustive at all. In fact, I could spend 75 minutes on a Wednesday night teaching on this topic just using biblical illustration. But let me give you a sampling this morning. Why did God create this universe? One example found in Scripture is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory, now I want you to pay attention, the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Notice the personal pronouns here. Notice the verbs. Who's doing what? God did it all. He did it for his glory. Why did God choose to create mankind? Isaiah 43, 7, one of my favorite passages on this concept. God says, for I have created him for my glory, and I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Why did God send Jesus to earth? John 17, 4. Jesus prayed, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. The word is glory. The simple answer is, why are you here? Why am I here? And I said that first hour, and people are probably looking, because it's Sunday. No, I don't mean in church. Why do you exist? I want you to think about something. This is going to seem really like I'm just being bold and trampling on you, and that's not my intention. But if it works, it works. Did you know you didn't choose to be here? Do you remember that right? 
When Dale and Marilyn Christian decided to have four boys and I became the third one, I didn't have any say in that. I didn't choose to be here. I was created by two human beings who loved each other. I was given breath by God, made in the image of God, and I was brought here to earth. So because I didn't choose to be here, I had no say in being here, I didn't get the timing of being here, when in the world did it become about me? The reality of my being created and formed by God indicates that it's not about me. I'm a part of something bigger. And the Bible indicates that the purpose of my being alive is to fulfill a purpose greater than myself called glory. Now, what does the term glory mean? Well, I like what Timothy Keller does with this. Dr. Keller says that glory means weighty, heavy, significant, substantive. In fact, he uses a wonderful illustration. He says, if you drop a piece of wood in a river, the glory of the river is greater than the glory of the wood. And the river will take the piece of wood wherever it wants to take it. But if you drop a stone in the river, the glory of the stone is greater than the glory of the water, and the stone will not be moved. Its glory is greater. And if the river should, should become bolder and stronger, the rock will not move. If the river dries up, the rock will remain. The river doesn't influence the rock. The rock influences the river. Shake your head if that makes sense. Now we're talking about the glory of God. The substantive nature of who God is in all of his brilliance and perfection is such that if we base our lives on the glory of God, no matter what currents come after us, they cannot move us from it. Because it's not my significance. It's not my weightiness. It's not my value or my prestige. It's the fact that I'm on the rock. And if we're here to live out the glory of God then we will, we will, as Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we will be standing on the rock whose foundation is firm, and when the storms come, and they will, we will stand. But if we build our lives on the sand, what will happen to us? Our glory is not significant enough to hold us up, and we will be wiped away. So, the last thing I want to say about glory, and this is very important to me, I want to kind of defend my God, not against you, but against logic and what some people say about him. God did not create us to reveal his glory for his own egocentric needs. God did not say, I brought you here for my glory, now serve me and like it. No, actually God's glory in this case is benevolent. He's giving us a safe place. He's creating a significance for us. He's bringing us into his family, adopting us into his kingdom, and he shares his glory with us. It's not our glory, but we reflect it. So for moments, we look like Jesus, or we show the beauty of God, or we understand the beauty of all that he's given us. God is not saying, serve me in my glory, because he's a power monger who has to have everybody like him. No, he's saying, I am even benevolent in my own character. What I'm revealing to you is for your own good. When the world says money and power and sex and fame are what make you who you are, when young ladies are told how they look is, is what makes them who they are, God says, no, no, look at my glory. I love you unconditionally. Set yourself on my glory. And no matter what currents come your way, you won't be swept off. You're going to find what your purpose is. So with all of that said, I've thrown so many different darts at you, hoping a few of them will stick. We know that we're here for the glory of God, not for ourselves. We know that the glory of God is his weightiness, his perfection, his love, and everything that he is. 
And we know that if we live our lives for the glory of God, we will not be swept away by the false things of this life. Our worldview, seen through Jesus, every thought taken captive to Christ, then the greater question I came up with that I have to answer is, then what does it look like to glorify God? Because I don't think there's a person in the room who, and and not just me, but through the arguments of Scripture, there's not a person in this room that I can't convince that God's glory should be your task. But what does it look like to do that? That's where we're not good. That's where this is new. That's like when you look at a diet, right? After you've just eaten three Big Macs and you're sitting on the couch going, I can't keep doing this. So you Google online diets and you read diets and you think, man, if I did that in 30 days, I could lose what it took 30 years to put on. And then you look at it and you go, but how would I choose to live that way? How would I change my behavior and my attitude toward food to be the person I want to be? Well, how do you glorify God when most of us have made it about us? How do we do this? Let me show you some examples from Paul's writings in Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, please. And I'd like to show you just very briefly four concepts I think that Paul writes to the church about what the glory of God looks like in the life of a believer. The very first thing is glorifying God is to accept the struggle for the gospel. Verse 24, the struggle. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Uh, If you weren't with us in January, we as a church went through, January and February, we went through the letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Colossae. And we entitled that series, Enough. Because Paul's conclusion was, Jesus is what we need. Jesus knew that he was the answer to our worldview mess up. That if we understood who he was, we would be able to see the world and its value and lack of value with greater clarity. Paul is writing this letter in prison. So here's my point. Paul said, in prison, I can rejoice in what I've suffered because the gospel is working. Not that Paul was receiving acclaim, that Paul was comfortable, that everything in his life worked out smoothly. No, he said, I'm struggling and suffering for the kingdom of God, and it is taking ground and welcoming people in. His worldview was such that he knew what it meant to bring glory to God was to struggle for the glory of God, to stand up for the glory of God, and to speak out to the glory of God. This is why Paul would write to the Romans, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You see, this man knew what it was. In verses 29 through uh, chapter 2, verse 1, if you'll jump down, looking at a later section of that same thought, Paul says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, with all the energy of Jesus, which so powerfully works in me, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. I want to show you another letter that Paul wrote to a young preacher named Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote in chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, this is one of those big preacher statements I'm about to make, so there's a warning. Buckle up. It's a fight. Fights aren't easy, fights aren't comfortable. Fights leave you sometimes hurting. 
Um, our, our little football team, I see Mike out here, and our little football team yesterday played a very physical football game for four, fourth graders. I was really impressed how they did it. Uh, Brayton decided to throw the football with me last night during the Notre Dame game, and he likes to have it, me throw it to him, and he runs across the living room. He tries to get the football over the couch to goal line, and I tackle him. And the first time he tried, I just wrapped my arm around him and pulled him in, and he went, oh, oh, oh. He goes, I'm done. He'd worked really hard that morning and forgot how hard he worked. And the first time his dad wrapped his arm and threw him down on the ground, he remembered every hit, every block, and every tackle. Church, Paul could tell you every hit, every block, and every tackle. And he said at the end of it, I'd do it again. Because the gospel went forward. The glory of God was revealed. Not his own personal acclaim. He fought. He raced. He worked. He exerted energy. And this is the big preacher statement. You ready? If the gospel of Jesus Christ is not costing you something, I question whether or not any of us are disciples. Because if all God's done is added a moral ethic to your existence, your worldview is about being a better person and not about promoting the glory of God through the kingdom of heaven. I'm not trying to bring shame. Please understand my heart. But there needs to be a wake-up call. If you play a football game and you're not sore at the end of it, I doubt you played. You just enjoyed the game. And we're not here to just enjoy the kingdom of heaven. We're here to struggle for the gospel message to go forth. In Acts chapter 9, this was said about Paul's relationship with salvation. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. This isn't just Paul's story. This is our part of the story. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in death. Paul had no question that it would cost him much to be a part of the glory of God. Second thing, glorifying God is to proclaim the promise of the gospel. It's to proclaim the promise of the gospel. Look at verses 25 to 27. Paul says, I have become its servant, it being the gospel. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To God, or to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The lens of taking every thought captive to Jesus and presenting it in front of the gospel message of the Savior who came to save the self-saving. That gospel truth, Paul said, I am, I'm owned by it. I've given my life to it. It's going to be the most valuable thing in my life is promoting the gospel message. And it is the lens by which we correct our faulty vision. You see, the word of God does not have to be popular to be true. And it's not popular. But the call of the gospel, if true, deserves everything we are. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This story of the gospel goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and it proceeds all the way to the end of Revelation to the great banquet in front of the Father. That the glory of God revealed to man will call men to the kingdom of heaven where the glory of God will be shown more and more and more. I believe it was John Piper who said that Jesus suffered to accomplish salvation and we should sacrifice to spread it. The gospel message, the beauty of it. 
Thirdly, this, what does glorifying God look like? It's to present the messenger of the gospel. And this is where I go back to what I, what I was joking with you about earlier this morning. That since I didn't choose to be here, I can't for one moment assume that this is about me. That I'm a part of something bigger that will go on through my children and one day I pray my grandchildren and all generations of my family will know who Jesus Christ is. Paul said in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. You see, the glory of God is not God's ego. The glory of God is God's benevolence. That by displaying the glory of Christ, we become mature in Jesus. By, by making the message prominent that we become a part of this kingdom and by proclaiming Jesus, we correct other people's vision. Not a Jesus who looks at people going, don't do that. But a Jesus who says, let me show you why you shouldn't live that way. Because it's ruining you. It's taking the image of God and it's trading it in for how you look and how much money you have and how athletic you are and how popular and cool and blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said, no, let me tell you how much you're loved. When we promote Jesus, like Paul says. In fact, the word I want to point out is the word admonishing there, it carries with it the concept of warning. It helps someone to set their mind straight. It's a worldview concept. How do you want to get the right worldview and live it out? Take every thought captive to Christ and the message of the gospel, and it will show you the value or the lack of value in the choices you're making. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul said, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And if I may, and this is not comparing us to other people, this is a prayer for our church. And I would ask you this week to join me in prayer for the church, not this church, the church. I pray that there'll be a revival of preaching about Jesus and not preaching about feelings, thoughts, and how to get better. Because when the church of Jesus isn't about Jesus, it's not the church. You need to hold this church accountable, and we need to pray for others that there'll be a revival, that the word of Jesus Christ will be what's promoted, and not the coolness or slickness of the presentation. It's dangerous days we live in, and glorifying God is about him and not about us. Lastly, glorifying God is to know the way of God in obedience. When Jesus has corrected your mind and your heart, and in reflection of him, you understand that as self-savers, we're desperate. But as those he came to direct and saved, we have life. Colossians 2.2. Paul wrote, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. That's a worldview term, fine-sounding arguments about what's valuable and what's not. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul said there is, I love this, because I like things in their place. Am I the only one? How many of you have a junk drawer? Chad mentioned it last week. Do you have a junk drawer? Okay. Do you find things in there that never should have been put in away? A, they never should have entered the house. Are you with me? Because they're in the house, some people can't throw things away, so we have a junk drawer full of Scotch tape that has less than an inch left on it. I think we can either donate that or throw it out. I like order. 
My wife's a very clean person. We, we get along quite well because she wants it out of the way and I want it in its spot. We have assignments. Paul uses orderly concepts here. He said a worldview with Jesus doesn't allow you to live this real spasmatic life of doing a thousand things. He says it's done how firm and orderly your faith in Christ is. The vision of Jesus will structure our lives to the glory of God if we just obey. Instead of seeing it as restrictive, we can counter some of the fine-sounding arguments of this world by taking them into the presence of Christ captive. 2 Corinthians 2.4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, Paul said, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power is most demonstrated in obedience. You see, faith is always found on the other side of obedience. And Paul said that the structure of the worldview matters. I want to jump really quickly. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. John 17. This is the last night of Jesus' earthly life before the crucifixion. He's talking to his disciples and he's praying a prayer. I believe I can make the case that this is Jesus' worldview statement. Maybe not completely, but it is one of them. John 17, 1 through 4, Jesus prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. Give weight to Jesus that your son may give weight to you. For you granted Jesus authority over all people, that the Savior might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus said, Father, you asked me to live this way, to see the world and the opportunity to take the self-savers and bring them into real salvation. And he said, and I've done that. And I showed them your beauty. I showed them the weight of who you are and how much you love them. I've revealed that, the holiness of God and the love of God. Jesus revealed that. And then he says, I did the work you gave me to do. But in verse 10, something significant happens. He said, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Here's what I realize. Jesus came to bring glory and identity of this great God to a people that didn't know him personally. And he says, I've done what you asked me to do is to bring you glory. But then in verse 10, he says, but my followers, my disciples are bringing me glory. Our job is not really the same as Jesus' job because he's done the salvation. We move on, led by the Holy Spirit, to bring glory to Jesus Christ, who will always reflect glory back on the Father. There's a reason we worship Jesus, because he is the door, he is the way, he is the light, he is the truth, and he's the shepherd who calls us by name. But he does all of this so that the glory of God will be seen. And our role is to lift Jesus Christ up to his place. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Some good things are going to happen here this morning. I'm going to encourage those of you that are under the weight of the world and not under the the beautiful weight of God that if you need prayer today, and I know this is a pride issue for some of you, but if you want someone to pray with you, go to one of these tables where a lamp is lit. If you're not comfortable doing it in this, in this moment and you want some more private time, when you go out these doors, out in the foyer, look for me in the foyer, and there are four tables there. There's places for you to write prayer requests. 
There's places for, there'll be some of us there to pray with you if you'd like to be prayed with. Last week was powerful when people walked out and said, would you journey with me this week in prayer? Of course we will. That's what the body of Christ does. Holds each other up when we're weak. But this morning, beautiful things are going to take place. As soon as I get done yapping, we're going to open the curtain in that room and you're going to see someone give their life to Jesus Christ in baptism. But that's the start of it. This morning, in this place, we're celebrating 14 baptisms. Let let me explain. Oh, it gets better than that. Let me tell you what you're going to see. You're going to see three sets of pictures. You're going to see two individuals who on our property today are going to confess Jesus Christ and be baptized. But they're also going to see a picture of 12 people in Mexico. Let me tell you this story. I contacted uh, our missionaries in Mexico and they said, well, we think we have two coming up. I said, we would love to celebrate those. Would you send us a picture so we can celebrate what's going on down there? And I got uh, an email back. It simply said this. Pastor Mark, I was mistaken. We're not having two baptisms. We're having 12. All, all to the glory of God. And these 12 that are being baptized are deaf. And these missionaries went down there to deal with people who society wasn't taking care of and are ministering to them. And because of your investment in the kingdom and their love for God and for the glory of God being displayed this morning... And I'm about done. We're going to celebrate 14 people who are taking a knee before the glory of God and setting their lives on his weightiness for eternity. And church, that's good news. Not to us, but to Jesus Christ and his Father goes all the glory and honor. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.